Well, this morning is a rich, rich time to reflect on these grand themes of the resurrection. And I know some of you might be visiting us for the first time. And if you are, after we'd gladly be able to minister to you. If you have any questions, feel free to come up and love to talk with you and minister to you in any way we can. We started to talk about on Friday night, on Good Friday, of the impossible dilemma, the dilemma of man's sin, his rebellion against God. There's a holy God, a righteous God who cannot overlook sin, a God who is just in all of his ways, a God who who will bring condemnation for the transgression. And then we saw that there is a universal guilt of mankind, all of mankind is under condemnation because of their rebellion against God. And that man has been not only just in guilt, but has been openly hostile to God. This is the impossible dilemma of mankind, that he cannot uh, escape the judgment But this morning we come to the theme of the improbable deliverance. God's answer to this impossible dilemma is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We celebrated that on Friday night when we looked at communion, saw the significance of Christ's life and death, and now we turn our attention this morning to the example of Christ's life And we're going to use Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 7. It's kind of the launching pad for us to look at this historical event. I do want to point out to you that Easter, like a holiday, we tend to have the kind of uh, response nowadays, at least in, in society, is to view holidays as a bit of a myth. I mean... How many have seen an Easter bunny hopping around? We tell our kids about the Easter bunny. We put out gifts for our kids. But we take a historical event and give it a kind of mythology which takes away the offense of the holiday. Same thing happens at Christmas time. We talk about a jolly old Saint Nick who comes around and gives gifts. But we take away the offense of the holiday. The events of the holiday is the reminder of the testimony of the Christian faith, reminder of God's marvelous work. We come on Easter to remember the significance of God's work because these things occurred. They're historical details. It's not a myth. We're not following Christ like we follow the Easter bunny or we follow Santa Claus. Christ is living, the Son of God that he lived here on earth and walked the earth. He died and he was raised again. And all the truths of the Christian faith are anchored in historical details. And it's those historical details that we want to pay attention to this morning particularly. Because of the event of Easter morning, Jesus Christ is separated from every other religious leader who ever lived. Any other guru who came, any other individual who came announcing some religion, don't compare to Christ at all. They are dead. The Dalai Lama is dead. Muhammad is dead. 
Priests come and go, they die. Presidents come and go, popes come and go. But only one has died and rose again, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one leader, there's only one who has conquered death, there is only one who has ascended into heaven, awaiting a return, who establishes his glorious kingdom and rule that all will give an account to. The popes will give an account to him. Muhammad will give an account to him. Priests and anyone else who comes offering a way of salvation, every false teacher who has ever risen up will give an account to this one. So we understand then the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none like him. And Matthew 28 gives us some of those details. In Matthew's account... Matthew testifies to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, just like the other gospel writers, Mark, Luke, and John, testify to the significance of the resurrection. And I just want to draw those accounts together so that you leave understanding the historicity of the resurrection. That these events are anchored in historical details. So you understand, when you come to this particular day, the day of worship on Easter, you come to recognize a historical event. In Matthew's account, Matthew builds this case. And as you are in Matthew 28, turn over to Matthew chapter 12 because I think this is the turning point in Matthew's account for the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes in Matthew chapter 12. The early part of Jesus' life was a part of affirmation. An affirmation that he was the one promised. Matthew chapter 1 describes that. All the Old Testament promises of through whom the Messiah would come. He would come through the line of David. Matthew demonstrates that's exactly what happened. You see the preservation and protection of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. You see the confirmation of Jesus as the Son of God in Matthew chapter 3. You see the testing of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You see the message of Jesus in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. You see the power of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 through 10. Matthew chapter 11, you see the calling of his disciples. In all of this earthly ministry, you see the growing popularity of Jesus' ministry. So that then, as Jesus is ministering at this point, thousands are coming to him, to hear him. Every time he came into public, people were flocking to him because, after all, who do you turn to when you are sick? This guy can cast out demons by his words. He can heal the sick by his words. So everyone was flooding to Christ to hear this man of God. While this was happening, Jesus was facing hostility. And that's Matthew chapter 12, the hostility of the religious leaders. Starts in verse 1 on a particular Sabbath morning, on a Saturday morning, the day of worship for the Jews. Verse 1 says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Normally this would not be a problem, this would be a rather normal occasion, but on the Sabbath, there were a bunch of rules. Couldn't work on the Sabbath. And to pluck grain, to peel away the outer shell, and to eat that grain constituted working, and therefore constituted violating the Sabbath, and therefore they were in sin. Finally, 
The religious leaders had something to accuse Jesus with. His, leader, his disciples are now lawless. His disciples don't follow the traditions. He is now teaching a rogue group of, leader, of people who would violate the law of God, the law of Moses, to turn against God. Here's the reason why you shouldn't follow this prophet. This is their open hostility to Christ. Verse 2, they confront him. Pharisees saw this and they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Is this the kind of group that you're raising up? You're raising up a bunch of lawless individuals? Look, Christ, you can't even get your own people in line. Jesus goes on and challenges their thinking questioning them about what they were saying, pointing to the Old Testament examples about David eating the bread that was constituted for the priests alone, demonstrating God's compassion in verse 7, that God desires, as he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He actually turns the table on them and says, you don't understand the Old Testament, nor do you understand the character of God. You don't even understand what you're saying here. From this event, they move from the fields into the local synagogue. Verse 9 says, he went into their synagogue. And as they walk into the synagogue, on this particular morning came a man who was crippled. He was, had a withered hand. And they decided that they were going to put Jesus Christ to the test at this moment. That they were going to question him and expose him. Either he didn't have the power he said he had because he couldn't heal this man. Or if he does heal this man on the Sabbath, he's a lawless man. They've already caught his disciples in a transgression. Now they're going to confront Jesus and catch him. They ask him in verse 10, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Matthew adds this little phrase, so that they might accuse him. They set him up. They ambush him. They're going to find some reason to discredit Jesus Christ, something that he's going to do to demonstrate that this man is indeed a lawless prophet who has no place and should be cast out, should be rejected. Jesus says to them, verse 11, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? And how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He turns the attention to them and says, you guys are such hypocrites. You guys had a sheep, and if your sheep fell into a hole, you would rescue that sheep on the Sabbath. Would you not do much more for a person? And he ends up turning, verse 13, he turns to the man and says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and it was restored to normal like the other. Immediately on the spot, Jesus Christ demonstrates the marvelous power that he has and heals the the man right in front of them all on the spot. Crippled man who was there as a test for Christ reaches out his hand, and he is immediately healed. And you would think at that moment, what would the natural response be in the heart? Awe, wonder, dismay, worship. 
I mean, it's not too many times where somebody's walking in crippled and immediately before your very eyes being restored and healed and walked out. And if it happened, the natural response is one of adoration and praise. But in their own heart, this was a test to discredit Christ. And for them, they just determined this Christ is discredited because he is working on the Sabbath. He's violating the law of Moses. He is now a individual who goes against God. There's no way he could be of God. Their response comes in verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Instead of worshiping, their hearts were hardened, and they decided we are going to destroy him. They leave. Christ leaves. As he leaves, the news of the healing goes out, and everyone who is crippled, lamed, sick comes to him. Verse 15 describes that. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And they went out, and he describes, again, the healing of those who were sick. The Pharisees regrouped, jump down to verse 22. They regrouped and they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and they brought them to Jesus, and Jesus healed the man. And when that happened, verse 23 described all the people were amazed. Here is a man who is casting out demons, and their response was, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? This has to be. What we've been waiting for. This has to be the one promise from the Old Testament. This has to be the Messiah, the son of David, the one who comes from David's line. This has to be it. Cast out demons. He has healed the crippled. He's demonstrated this marvelous power. And notice the Pharisees' response in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, They said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. He's demonic. He is demon-possessed. That's how he does these things. He is filled with Satan's power. They had to discredit him. They had to destroy his message in every way. He couldn't be who he said he was. He couldn't be the promised Messiah couldn't be demonstrating these powers and righteousness. He couldn't be speaking on behalf of God. He had to be false. I mean, look, his life doesn't line up with the law of Moses. And he, look, he must be filled with demonic forces. Verse 38, chapter 12. Again, this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry when there's just outright rejection by the religious leaders. Religious leaders come to him. It says in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. I mean, at this point, it's now just dripping with sarcasm, dripping with hostility towards the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see another sign. But the healing of the man in the synagogue wasn't enough, and the casting out of the demon was not enough. The healing of the crowds, that was not enough. None of that is sufficient for you. So notice then what Jesus says in response to them. Okay, verse 39. 
He answered and he said, An evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, notice, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'll give you a sign. The sign is going to be my death, my burial, and then my resurrection. That'll be the sign. The final, ultimate sign in which Jesus would give to these hostile religious leaders was the sign of his resurrection. That he would bear upon himself the penalty of sin, that he would die, lay down his life, and three days later give it up. This is the turning part in Matthew's gospel. From then in chapters 13 and on, he no longer speaks plainly to the religious leaders. He only speaks in parables. And he no longer ministers out in public among them all. He only ministers in private to his disciples and a few who gather in and find him. Jesus pulls away from them all. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28 then. And this is the testimony The testimony of God's marvelous work, the ultimate, the final, the great sign, the last sign that he was going to show those who were in unbelief, those who had rejected him, this is the greatest sign that he could possibly give. The greatest testimony, the greatest proof of who he is, is in this work of Christ, his resurrection. For the believer, the resurrection is the basis of our hope. For the unbeliever is the basis of judgments and doom. It is at the very heart of the Christian faith. You discredit the resurrection, you discredit everything that we believe, everything that we are about. For we are then uh, wasting our time here if there was no resurrection. The resurrection is the very foundation of the church. The very first sermon at the birth of the church, Peter, speaking to the men of Israel on the day of Pentecost, says it was in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, it was God who raised Christ up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. At the resurrection was the demonstration that Christ conquered death. Paul goes on to describe this work later in Acts chapter 13, speaking of God raising Jesus from the dead, Acts chapter 13 and verse 30. But he gives more significant insight in, in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, you can just listen. In Mars Hill, Paul is making a defense of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 17, as he is standing before the the Athenians, and they are all discussing gods of the day. Paul draws attention to the unknown God, and he speaks about the unknown God, and he starts describing the work of the God of the Scriptures and the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of his testimony, Paul says this about the resurrection, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He says this, But God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. 
So he's saying, look, there's a day of judgment coming, that day in which he is appointed, he's appointed it through one man. Well, then what's the proof of that? Verse 31, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The proof of divine judgment to come is the proof of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if there's no resurrection, there's no judgment. There's no resurrection. There's none who have to give an account for their transgressions. But with the resurrection is the proof that judgment is coming. This is the heart of the gospel that Paul preached. The heart of the, the church, the very foundation of the church, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the demonstration that Jesus Christ is has conquered death. It is the proof that divine judgment is coming. But Paul adds more to it. In Romans chapter 1, he says this about Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, and verse uh, 3 and 4, he says, Concerning his son, who has been born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who has declared the Son of God with power, notice, by the resurrection from the dead. What did the resurrection do? It declared Jesus Christ as the Son of God, born in the line of David. The resurrection is the proof of who Jesus is as the Messiah. It's the proof of his divinity as the Son of God. It is the power of God to conquer death, and it is the proof of divine judgment coming. This is significant. It's also the basis of the birth of the church, for just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we are raised from the dead, and we walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 describes that. So without the resurrection, there is no hope, no conversion in faith, no sanctification, no eternal rewards, no Son of God, no condemnation. So then it's absolutely important then that we understand the resurrection and this is where we turn back to Matthew 28 and we see the historical details surrounding the events of the resurrection. And again, here's what I want you to remember when we're looking at Matthew 28. We're looking at an eyewitness testimony of events. Matthew, like a journalist, going around talking to various individuals who lived out the event, tells a particular story. Just like Mark, Luke, and John, each giving an account from their various vantage point, telling the story of the historical details that took place. Now Matthew gives this account, lays out these details for us, so that as we see this, we can see the historicity of these events. Again, this isn't a mythology. This isn't some story that we tell our children. This is a historical event, and here are the details that Matthew records on this historical event. In our remaining moments, we'll just look at these seven verses. Matthew says this, Now, after the Sabbath, it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Matthew gives a couple little details here. This is after the Sabbath, so this is now early Sunday morning. 
So early in the morning, it says, as it's about to dawn, so the sun is just starting to come up. Very early in the morning, and two individuals, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, come and they decide to come to the grave on this early morning. Luke records that they come because they had been preparing to come. They had gone out and they had bought spices and they had gathered those spices together and they had determined that morning that they were going to come and refresh the body of Christ by applying more spices, likely determining that his death and his burial happened so rapidly that he didn't get the appropriate burial treatment. They were going to make up for it on this particular morning and add the spices and other scents so as to give the true honor to him. Something significant happened on this particular morning. Verse 2 describes it. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. An earthquake had occurred that particular morning, just like an earthquake had occurred on Friday afternoon at the death of Christ. There was a major earthquake. Now, a couple days later, three days later, there is an earthquake. It woke the woman, likely, or aroused them. To the point that they hurried out to the tomb to see what is taking place. It's important to understand that particular detail because then it adds to the distress of these women as they were heading to the grave. They're heading there not only with a desire to worship and to show Christ honor, but now they're heading with a bit of uncertainty as this earthquake had occurred. Verse 2, the middle of it, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. This point, it's noticed the text says, an angel of the Lord, an indefinite article there, not the angel of the Lord, referencing the Old Testament pre-incarnate Christ. This is an angel, one who belongs to God, one who ministers to God. And I think this is the description of his appearance in verse 3. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. I think this was an angel that was regularly in the very presence of God. White, bright, brilliant comes, lands on this particular stone with his coming, brings with him an earthquake, and the stone is rolled away at the presence of this very angel. Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary come, and they see this angel. And as the text says there, he talks to them. Verse 5, he says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Immediately, Mary Magdalene leaves. She runs to John and Peter. John chapter 20 tells us this. Mary runs over to the disciples. He, she finds them and says, Jesus is missing. John describes in his gospel, again, John chapter 20, he describes hearing this news, uh, suddenly shocked by it, gets up and starts heading towards the tomb. But ahead of him runs Peter. Peter starts running to the tomb. Immediately, Peter needs to see what's going on. John is behind him, and John outraces Jesus to the tomb. John arrives, he looks within the tomb, and as he is looking around, Peter comes barging in right into the center. There's nobody there. 
John looks around, sees nothing. Peter sees nothing. All they see is the grave clothing. The men, after seeing nothing, leave. And they head out. And as they head out, they are noticing, of course, the appearance of the guards on the ground. Notice verse 4 here, Matthew 28. The guards had shook for fear of him. This is the angel who landed. And they became like dead men and passed out. Passed out in the presence of these marvel- this angel. Again, this is one, I think, a great description of the natural response of man when they see the miraculous. Somebody thinks when they see miraculous signs that they're going to have such courage. In fact, every testimony of individuals coming into the presence of divine glory is this response here, people falling to their face. Matthew chapter 17, you see that? Here, Matthew chapter 28, these trained soldiers who have seen death, who are out there uh, regularly accustomed to fighting, who are there guarding this, see this angelic being, and they fall to their face. Pass out at the presence. As these angels had, uh, as this angel had appeared, these men pass out. Jesus' disciples came, looked, notice he's not there. They leave. And now what's left here is the account of these women who are looking around for Christ, wondering of the significance of what is taking place. The whole account describes a morning which the individuals, the ladies, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, are there in awe and wonder and amazed about what's taking place. But there's also great confusion that what's taking place. This is picked up for us in John's account. You can just listen. John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, the disciples... Jesus, or, or Peter and John came, they leave. Mary Magdalene stays around. She's in the tomb and she is weeping, wondering about what is taking place at this point in time. And in verse 11, it picks up for us. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and she looked into the tomb And she saw in the tomb two angels in white sitting. Again, this is different from the one angel who came and opened up the tomb. These are now two angels within the tomb. And she is looking within the tomb, seeing these two angels sitting there, one at the head, in verse 12, and one at the feet, and where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, we get a detail here as to Mary's frame of mind in verse 13. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Her mind at this point is, somebody has stolen Christ's body. It was easier for her to believe at that particular moment that those Roman guards that stood out did something. 
those guards that were guarding the tomb, they must have come and taken the body. So we'll see in a moment. Her mind can quickly shift from that to maybe it was a gardener who did it. Her idea was that she was, again, this is the natural state here, it's easier for her to believe that there was some nefarious attempt of the religious leaders or the Roman soldiers or the government that would come in and take away this body. So she was there in distress, weeping over this particular loss of Christ, trying to account in her own mind what happened. By the way, that is significant. Because some have believed, well, that what happened is a bunch of leaders, a bunch of Jesus' disciples got together and they came up with this particular story. Well, if they're coming up with their particular story, they're not coming out and telling you your, their vulnerabilities. They're not telling you, like Mary says here, somebody must have stolen them. They're trying to put together, if it was a concocted story made up by a group of zealous religious disciples, they're not sharing their weaknesses here. They'd only be sharing the strengths of their story. Mary here then, grieved, uncertain, trying to find somebody to blame, overwhelmed and weeping at the events. It says there in verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And again, this is insight that John gives us as, she, as he interacts with Mary and gets her response. She was supposing him to be the gardener. And she said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. This is again in her mind. You must have been the one. Maybe it was you. I bet there's some hope in her. Maybe you're the one who took him away. Just tell me where his body is, and I will take him. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and she and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. In response to that, Peter runs back to the tomb again. He's got to see for himself. He's got to know what's taking place. Mary had seen the resurrected Christ. Again, I'm showing you these details of who's running to the tomb, at what points they're running here to interact and see the resurrected Christ to show you all the surrounding details of this historical event. Turn back to Matthew chapter 28. There's one thing I want you to see in regards to the testimony of the angel. Certainly we have the testimony of all the eyewitnesses that were there. And that testimony would be for us uh, encouraging, sufficient. 
we would understand in the testimony of many multiple eyewitnesses, each would be telling the story from their vantage point. We would expect that John and Peter would have a different vantage point than Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Certainly, we would understand that each would have a different experience, a different insight into the events that took place, even a different motivation to go there. The ladies, of course, had a desire to go there to show honor to Christ. And again, Matthew's gospel reflects that, and so does Luke's. The disciples went there to validate their faith or to verify. John's account determines that. All of those accounts would be worthy enough to say these are historical proofs, but there is one most important historical proof that is essential for us. One which is the basis of why the church comes together. One which is our hope and testimony is this, because God said it. That's the answer. The all that I need to know is that God said this is what was going to take place. And that's exactly what Matthew 28 describes in verse 6. When the angel sits there and the two ladies come and they interact with him and he says to them that he's not here, the one you're looking for is not here. And then he says this, he's not here for he is written. And then this phrase, just as he said. Just as he had promised. Promised years ago, Matthew chapter 12, in the middle of his earthly ministry, when he was rejected by the religious leaders, what he promised to them as the sign, he did it just as he said. Just as would be promised from the Old Testament, the one who would be forsaken, the one who was rejected, and the one who was despised, Isaiah 53, the one who would be rejected by his own people was going to be the one who was going to rule and reign. What was anticipated in the Old Testament is then validated in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, promised by Christ himself. And in fact, Christ had been telling his disciples multiple times this was coming. Multiple times throughout Matthew's account, four different events occurred where Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, the religious leaders are going to turn me over, crucify me, and I'm going to die, and then I'll raise again. Multiple times he had been promising this, so that the greatest testimony of the resurrection is the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, of him doing exactly what he said. I will die, and I will raise again. In fact, the first account of this is over in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, at the first revealing of who Jesus Christ was, after he had asked his disciples, and again, remember, this is after chapter 12 when they have rejected. He's now only ministering to his disciples quietly behind the scenes. And he says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And of course, they give different answers. Verse 14, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah, and still others say you're Jeremiah or some other prophet. They view you in a, in a way in which you're seen as a great prophet, Jesus. They have a high view of you. Well, who do you say that I am, he says to them in verse 15. 
And Peter answers with those famous words in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We know you, you're not just the, a prophet, you are the son of God, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. Christ goes on and blesses them. But now we come to verse 21 and through 23. Jesus says, says there, from this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And again, just as he said, it was going to be punishment, it was going to be rejection by the chief priests and leaders, he's going to be killed and he's going to be raised on the third day. In fact, you say, well, how did the disciples take it? Well, verse 22 says, they knew exactly what Jesus say, was saying, and Peter rebuked him for it, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The very natural response of the human heart, no way. Why? Because it's impossible. If you die, then we lose you. This, again, is the improbable deliverance. Man, in his own heart, would believe that if Christ died, this is over. Everything we have is done. It's over. As I said three other times from this event, Jesus says the same thing. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to be killed. And then he'll raise on the third day. So the greatest testimony, back in Matthew 28, the greatest testimony of God's marvelous work is this. He does exactly what he says he's going to do, just as he said. While we have all the other witnesses, certainly we rejoice in the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We rejoice in the testimony of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We rejoice in the testimony of the angels who came and testified. We rejoice in the testimony of the apostles who announced the message. We rejoice in the testimony of the early church and everyone who proclaims. But our greatest confidence is in the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God himself. He said it. He said it. What's our takeaway real quick? This morning, four quick little takeaways for us, lessons. This is a historical event. It's the first testimony. First truth we take away. This isn't a story, bedtime story we tell our kids. This is a historical event, an event that is testified to by many witnesses from many angles and directions. In fact, that's what I love about the gospel testimonies, each of the synoptic gospels and John's gospel, each coming from various vantage points, telling us of an event just like an eyewitness to uh, any significant event. Each having unique perspective and insight, but adding more to the story is the demonstration of the historicity of what has taken place. So that... All of it, we can tell, would stand up in a court of law, would stand up in a public defense because of the, the eyewitnesses and the data given. And by the way, that was the Old Testament proof of something, something being legally upright, was the having the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
multiple witnesses is what is required when one goes to court to have multiple witnesses come in and testify the details. Well, the same thing has happened here in the testimony of the life of Christ. Multiple witnesses were given to demonstrate the veracity of this historical event. Second truth is this. Not only is it historical, but the second truth is it's a demonstration of the marvelous power of God. And that's what we see in these seven verses, God's power on display, occurring in the earthquakes, occurring in the angel's arrival, occurring in the demonstration, removal of the stone, occurring in the, uh, the natural response of the man to turn and faint in regards to their uh, response of what they were seeing. Some of, again, I love that little detail that Matthew brings there, the guards fainting, not only because it just shows the humanity there, but it also adds a little wrinkle to verses uh, 13 through 15 when the religious leaders in Matthew 28 try to give a new story. And they concoct a new story saying, well, tell the soldiers that the, the disciples came and took away the body of Christ while they were asleep. And that's now the new story that would go around as Matthew records, this is what was said to this day. The only problem is, if you were a Roman soldier and you neglected your post in this way, the consequence was death. Immediately die. You as a Roman soldier failed to carry out your duty. You were no longer trustworthy and therefore your punishment was death. For these men to even be alive, it's a demonstration of the hoax. Again, remarkable human details demonstrated here and the marvelous power of God had demonstrated. Two more little details of takeaway from this is then the theological basis. With the resurrection, as I pointed out, there is proof that Jesus is the Son of God. With the resurrection is the proof that there is deliverance from sin for God conquered death. And with the resurrection is the proof of divine judgment coming because Jesus was raised, so judgment is coming. Without the resurrection, then we wouldn't have to worry about judgment, but with the resurrection, there is judgment. Not only that, is there's also then the hope of reward for those who believe. Resurrection is the very foundation then of the church. But maybe there's one more ultimate truth that I want to point out. And it will come from Romans chapter 6. There's one truth. I think about the, the resurrection of Christ, and I think about the display of the sinner. One, you might even say to yourself, my life is such a mess. I have no power to overcome it. Sin just has entangled my life can't find any deliverance. I try, I fail, I get somewhere, I fall short, I have nowhere to go. I, I, my life is completely broken. I'm just running from it. It's no hope. And I think it's, again, in the resurrection that we find God's solution, the improbable deliverance. For what is more hopeless than death? What is more final than death? Right? We say that. There's two certainties. 
Death and taxes. Taxes are coming. They're actually really soon, in fact, for us. Just a little public announcement there. Taxes are due here. But then there's also death. Two absolute certainties, two absolute final events that are coming that are unavoidable. We want to avoid them at all costs. What's more dismaying than death? Nothing. And yet, in Jesus Christ, there is deliverance from death. In Romans 6, the believer is testified to of having a transforming power that abides in Christ. And Paul says these words in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1 through 7. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He's describing here our uniting to Christ and our relationship to him. And you've been joined to him in faith and you believe upon him. You have been united to him, immersed in him. That's the idea of baptized. You've been united and immersed into him. And you've been united and immersed into his death. Verse 4, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What is the glorious truth of the resurrection? The glorious truth of the resurrection is God has conquered death, and in Christ we conquer death. We live in newness of life. Verse 5, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Resurrection of Christ is the proof that every believer is raised up, set free to live in newness of life. So that if your life is full of misery and full of slavery to corruption and sin, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn and find freedom, find life, turn and find deliverance. For what's impossible for us, what's impossible for man, is not impossible for God For God gives newness of life, and God sets us free. And the proof of that is in the historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the continued proof of that is in the existence of the church and the redeemed people of God who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who live out this testimony every day as they live in newness of life for the glory of Christ. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this marvelous message and testimony. Thank you for your scriptures filled with truths, affirmed over through not only through your word, but affirmed even in in historical events. And just pray for the power of your word to be on display in our own hearts. And thank you for this marvelous morning, for an opportunity to remember the significance of your work. 
We pray for those who do not know you that they would turn and hold firmly to Christ and believe upon him and call out in faith and confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. We pray for your children who have already professed that they would find great joy walking in their new resurrected life as they continue to put off the old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and they continue to walk in newness of life. Thank you for this morning and this opportunity to give you all praise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.